This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The proposed Allergan-Pfizer merger for around $150 billion hit a roadblock earlier this week. Actually, it was more like a brick wall. Changes by the U.S. Treasury Department to prevent these so-called inversion deals forced the two sides to walk away from the table due to the potential tax liability of moving forward. The changes by the Treasury have drawn swift reaction from the two companies, saying that the government targeted this particular deal. But with the run of inversions over the last several years, it could be a case of the government has just seen enough. To take a look at what has happened in the last few days, we welcome back Wharton's Jennifer Bluen, Associate Professor of Accounting, and also joining us, Adam Rosenzweig, who's a law professor at Washington University out in St. Louis, Missouri. Jennifer, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Adam, legally, who's, who's correct here, the government or the execs of the companies, and did the government go too far? Uh, well, this is a it's a it's an interesting and difficult question. Um, uh, in, in the past several years, Treasury has been taking several steps to uh, address what they see as concerns with these uh, so-called inversions, um, but they've been very careful to tie them to very specific uh, anti-abuse regulatory power that they've been delegated by Congress. Uh, these new rules represent a much uh, broader interpretation of their powers and much broader exercise of their powers to implement regulations to address these uh, inversions. And so uh, I don't think it's entirely clear the scope of those powers or how broad they possibly could be. And it's, uh, uh, there's not a lot of precedent on um, uh, what, if any, limits there are on those. Jennifer? No, I, I, I basically have to agree um, with Adam in that I was, quite frankly, pretty stunned at uh, the approach the government had taken with this particular uh, announcement, I guess, on Monday and that the prior um, notices that had been issued in 2014 and 2015 were more or less just, you know, broadening some of the interpretation of existing law. But these two bits that they, you know, the earnings stripping, and then I think what we'll talk about quite a bit, which is the, the serial acquirer um, proposals that they put out, were really, I think, uh, a little bit of Treasury um, uh, taking a little bit more aggressive position than uh, maybe what Congress originally intended. It is it, when you look at those two aspects to it, the, the stripping and, and the serial acquisition type companies, uh, obviously both have an effect uh, in, this, in this formula, Jennifer, but is there one, do you think that it, that it is the serial acquisitions uh, type companies that is the biggest concern here by the government? Well, that if, if you're talking about specifically the Pfizer deal, absolutely. Yeah. I, I would yeah. tend to agree with Pfizer and Allergan that that's specifically what they did. They looked at a 36-month look-back period and said any deals that happened within that period were, were essentially not going to count in terms of determining the size of, of Allergan. And it, it, there's a, several other inversion transactions in process right now. I believe there's um, Tyco, Johnson Control, Waste. Uh, connections and progressive and and there's a, a data company i think ihs and market none of those deals will be affected by this sort of serial acquire and and neither do i think any of uh 
uh, any of the other deals that have sort of closed over the past couple of years. This is clearly a piece of legislation that they could not figure out how to shut down Pfizer, um, Pfizer Elegant, but for write a set of laws that specifically targets or proposed law, let me say, that mm-hmm. specifically targets that transaction. A- Adam, what do you think ends up being then the course of action by the by the two companies in this? I mean, will they take this to, to a legal challenge? You know, a legal, so uh, it, 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 a legal challenge to these rules is difficult, um, uh, but it depends obviously on the scope and size of the transaction and what what the issues are. But the reason it's difficult is because these are uh, the prior rules were issued as what are called uh, so-called IRS notices, which are sort of administrative statements that we intend to issue rules in the future on these subjects. But these were issued as regulations. Regulations are intended to when finalized, have the binding force of law. Mm-hmm. And uh, so typically courts tend to give substantial deference to the Treasury when they're issuing regulations pursuant to the delegated authority. The, the challenge would be that this was outside of their uh, delegated authority by Congress. This is just Treasury has gone too far and didn't have the authority to enact these. To, to challenge that, they would have to be finalized. They would have to be applied to a taxpayer. The taxpayer would have to challenge the assessment of tax and then go to court There'd have to be a trial, a trial court decision, presumably an appeal. So it would be it would be a lengthy and time-consuming process. Jennifer, you in line with that as well? Absolutely, and I don't think that you know with a what is it, a hundred and fifty billion dollar deal? That's yeah. a lot of risk to be put forth and essentially file a return and then wait and see what happens in you know five to six years. I, explain the the, the, the rules themselves, uh, because let's start with. Uh, with basically what they were talking about with these the serial uh, acquisitions that were being made. In the case of, of Allegan Pfizer, there had been a pattern of purchases basically leading up to this particular one, correct, Jennifer? Yeah, they had, um, gosh, I want to say they started back several years ago when they, you know, obviously the whole activist acquired Allergan. Then there was Forest Labs and Warner Chilcott, I think, another one of the big pharmaceutical companies. And so it was just a matter of activists essentially had grown via acquisition. And, you know, the argument was made is what they were acquiring was principally U.S. companies. And so now they've, they've gotten to the point where they could uh, take a very large U.S. company offshore. And that basically what, what the rules now say uh, that the government laid down is all of those other prior acquisitions really don't, ta- don't count uh, when we're talking about uh, this this original company taking over a new one, correct? Right. Well, the issue is size. Yeah. So exactly. The, and first of all, what I mean, this is kind of a you know open-ended question, but what constitutes an inversion? And it turns out, tax law says an inversion is a transaction whereby any of the you know domestic or the U.S. companies, in this case Pfizer's shareholders, own sixty percent or more of the combined entity afterwards. So the 60% is a magic number. And so what yep. you have is when you have a very large company like Pfizer, they have to, to, to get that 60-40 split, they have to be acquired by a very large non-U.S. company. Yep. And the trouble is, is Allergan got there by acquiring not foreign <laughs> companies, but U.S. companies. And that really, I think, sort of sticks in the craw of Congress at this point in time, or at least the current administration. That is Jennifer Bluen of the Wharton School, Associate Professor of Accounting. We're also joined by Adam Rosenzweig, who is a law professor at Washington University in St. Louis. We're talking about the uh, changes in the rules that the Treasury Department put down uh, earlier this week to try and 
try and eliminate uh, inversion deals if they possibly can. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I guess, Adam, the the next question is, is that these rules that were set down by the government, are they basically in a position now to uh, try and eliminate as many of these inversion deals as possible, or is there still some, some work to be done on the government's part? Well, there's 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 really sort of two issues going on here, and I think uh, Treasury, the the lawyers in Treasury and the IRS are are sort of incredibly good at this. They're very smart, hardworking. You know, uh, they 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 draft you know very uh, you know good regulations, and they, and they, but they're always uh, chasing the last deal, right? Or sort of uh, they're always fighting the last battle. And yeah. whenever you're fighting the last battle you're not necessarily prepared to win the next one. And so the real problem here is that, uh, as, as what I see, is that they're, they're um, chasing the symptoms of the problem, and not, uh, which is because of both of time pressure and because of the limited scope of their power, absent legislation. And so we never sort of resolve the underlying uh, source of these problems. So what do you think should have been done? Well, as I said, there was there was sort of limited options. Even the option that Treasury took here was sort of you know, you know, quite aggressive in terms of the claiming their scope of the power, absent sort of rethinking mm-hmm. the real fundamental question, which is, what does it mean to be an American company uh, now in 2016, as opposed to you know when these rules were first developed in the in the earlier 20th century? And uh, the current law says you're a U.S. company if you're legally organized as a corporation in the United States. Um, but uh, other people have said, well, no, it should be where the board of directors meets. Other people have said it should be where you're publicly traded. Other people have said it should be if, you've, if you uh, were uh, founded and started up with U.S. subsidies and assistance. That's sort of what Hillary Clinton was claiming when she talked about Johnson Controls. They took government subsidies. They took government loans. They now have a responsibility to remain a U.S. company and pay U.S. taxes worldwide. What do you think, Jennifer, is going to be the the fallout from this going forward? As you said, there are some other inversion deals kind of in the works right now. Well, I think the, you know, essentially the the serial acquisition bid is not going to stop those other deals. And I mean, I think it's important to point out, and and I agree with Adam, is, you know, what defines corporate citizenship? And and this is really the fundamental debate and the issue that needs to be addressed. And, um, you know, Congress is not ready to take this on, um, as evidenced by the fact that these, you know, what's the changes that have been proposed are coming directly from Treasury, not true changes in law. Right. But I think one of the fundamental issues we also have to get back to is thinking about, well, why do companies want to leave the U.S.? Yep. Uh, part of the reason why they want to leave the U.S. is because we have a high 35 percent corporate tax rate. Um, you know, I think several of the deals that we've been talking about, they're going to Canada or the United Kingdom, yep. right? They're not all going to, you know, tax haven Ireland. Um, and part of the reason is, is I think even recently Cameron um, in the U.K. has proposed reducing the corporate tax rate down to 17 percent there. I mean, yep. that's half the U.S. rate. So I think that we will see this inversion activity continue. Um, it's also, you know, I think a lot of people view inversions as purely abusive transactions, but in reality, you know, there's three reasons why you invert. You can invert to 
strip earnings out of the United States, and that was partially what was addressed um, by Treasury on Monday. You invert to access the, the cash, the trapped cash, or the, the profits uh, of, the for, of the U.S. entity that, that would be subject to double tax. Right. Well, those two are, are, are mitigated. But the third one that's important is that if you invert out of the U.S., all future profits and earnings that, that U.S. companies earn, not in the U.S., but overseas, will now only be subject to tax in the jurisdictions at which they're earned, these foreign jurisdictions, which turn out to all have tax rates lower than the U.S. And so that's really why I think that you'll continue to see um, in what we deem inversions. Um, But I want to be careful. To me, an inversion is a specific tax terminology. But uh, all, these, all these rules have done is essentially say, no, what we need to now have is the, the foreign companies that buy U.S. companies just have to be bigger, right? right. So we're, we're essentially still have a set of tax rules that advantage uh, are to the advantage of a foreign acquirer rather than a domestic buyer. And, and that seems like the wrong set of incentives. So then do you say, and, and as you said, not all of them have gone to, to Ireland. Uh, I, I was just thinking in my my mind while you were saying that is uh, the Burger King Tim Hortons deal. Absolutely. You and know, that actually wasn't even an inversion. I, I, and I, I wanted you to, to talk more about that to exactly explain if you view that as an inversion, because realistically, I see it as two companies or, you know, one company wanted to buy the other one. And that's exactly what happened. It just conveniently now Canada has a, a very favorable tax regime compared right. to the U.S. And that turns out that that even though, you know, technically, I think Burger King was larger than Tim Hortons. They, between the two companies, had had substantial business activities in Canada already, so they were not subject to any of this legislation um, that would, would you know, in, in terms of these notices that had been issued in, in the prior couple years. So, uh, and that's the key, is the this, this 60% threshold whereby the U.S. Uh, shareholders would continue to own the combined entity is an arbitrary setting deeming something subject to inversion. And this is the issue is I think what the current administration would like to do, and there's been proposals to say it should be 50%. Essentially, mm-hmm. if any transaction, you know, the U.S. shareholders own 50% or more, they still control, we should have these punitive tax um, measures. Uh, they should be subject to still these limits or still be taxed domestically. The trouble is, is that Congress has, or at least the Republicans, have been unwilling to take just this piece of legislation on. They want to do more. Let's do an overhaul of the corporate tax system. Let's consider moving from our worldwide system to territorial system, which pretty much every single one of our major trading partners has now, and a low tax rate. And so, as I said, this this is what you know, uh, Treasury could do on its own. But isn't still, the, as you mentioned, the, the, the tax issue and, and really buckling down and, and making a decision on potentially lowering the corporate tax rate here in the United States, isn't that still somewhat the gorilla in the room here that needs to be addressed at the, at the government level? Absolutely. And this is, I always say, a lot of these, like, fixes that they put out, kind of knee-jerk reactions, like putting a Band-Aid on a tumor, right? It doesn't <laughs> fix the underlying problem. Uh, Adam, I, I guess then, as as Jennifer mentioned, if we're going to continue to see these types of inversion deals try and move forward, uh, the legal aspects of this, I think, are going to grow and grow as we go the next few months and, and the next couple of years as well. No, I think that's absolutely right. And the reason is because that these laws are um, are just what I would sort of call instrumental, right? So there's no... There's no sort of deep economic theory about what is the source of a dollar of income is or you know, what, where a corporation is resident. 
these are implementing sort of national policies about when we want these companies to pay taxes and when we don't want other companies not to. And uh, what we are doing is we're building that entire foundation on a set of rules that are 100, you know, 100 years old or, or more at times. And so uh, really uh, what we need to have the discussion on is, is that sort of which companies do we want to impose these, these taxes and responsibilities on, which ones do we not want to, mm-hmm. and design tax, uh, tax laws that get us there instead of uh, keeping the current sort of uh, superstructure of the tax laws and then trying, uh, as Jennifer was saying, kind of patch it constantly when the real problem is that it's just it's, it's, it's a faulty sort of uh, superstructure of the laws. But I, it's really no surprise that we saw the CEOs of both Allergan and Pfizer come out, and and obviously they have uh, they have made their opinions well known on on how uh, negative they feel that they have been, uh, you know, their companies have have been impugned uh, with this type of a deal getting cut off at this point. Uh, for those two specific companies right there, is there is there a, a a legal path that they will probably follow? Do you think? So. As far as the, as I understand, the, you know, under the regulations, I think it's pretty clear how the rules would work. So their only options would be to challenge the validity of the regulations, as, as we said before. And that, just given the amount of risk and the amount of time it would take, it's a lot to ask any one company to take all of that cost and obligation on themselves, you know, to sort of challenge the validity for uh, you know for everybody else, right? And so you have sort of a classic sort of collective action problem there. You know, why should I be the one? To have to fight this, um, uh, but there's two other issues, right? So one is that uh, uh, their contract, again, from the, from what I've read, uh, publicly available, sort of had a change in law clause. So it said that if something like this happened, they yeah. could cancel the merger without. I mean, they had to pay some costs, but without paying the full cost of the things. So I doubt there would be a lawsuit about the merger not going through itself. We're talking with Jennifer Bloin of uh, the Wharton School, also Adam Rosenzweig of uh, Washington University in St. Louis. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. As we talk about uh, the changes made by the Treasury Department uh, towards inversion deals, again, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, Outside, uh, Jennifer, uh, of them paying that fee in terms of the deal not going through, what does this do to the finances of those two companies specifically? Not not much at all? No, not much at all. I mean, I think there's some, you know, issues. As Pfizer, remember, tried to, you know, buy AstraZeneca. Yeah. You know, so Pfizer's been on kind of this ongoing mission to, to sort of try to get offshore. But, no, I mean, I think the, the breakup fee here was $150 million, which yeah. to us it sounds like a big number, but in reality for the size of the deal it's quite small. I think the AbbVie Shire was someplace over a billion dollar breakup fee when that transaction didn't go forward. And so there you know what it tells me is that these two companies recognized that there was a lot of risk that there would be some sort of um, you know legislative challenge to the transaction and so the breakup fee is rather small. And I you know I think all that can happen is 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 Pfizer sort of waits to you know if Glaxo would were to come out and buy Pfizer, yeah. we wouldn't be having this conversation because the transaction could go through. And as far as I'm aware, none of these, uh, you know, none of the proposed um, regulations or temporary regulations would have had any effect on the transaction. So that's kind of some signal as to the arbitrary nature of this new serial acquisition rule that had come out. And hence why you say you believe that uh, that we will still see a lot of these inversion type deals try and go forward. Absolutely. It's just a matter of what becomes very critical here is the size match, 
right? Can you find the two appropriately sized companies to put yeah. them together and get the magic <laughs> below 60% number? Uh, just now what you have to make sure is that you don't have this, you know, the, the company that's acquiring the U.S. firm can't have grown by acquisition uh, over the past three years. Would this potentially be something that Pfizer might want to, you know, they may want to just sit on for two years and, and then and then potentially bring it back? Absolutely. Yeah, that would work. Yeah, it would. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it is it does when, when we, going through this the last 20 minutes or so, Jennifer, I mean, it does really enforce kind of the arbitrary nature of how these rules were kind of brought forward. Absolutely. I mean, and that's kind of the criticism. And I think that the, you know, heads of both of these companies are, you know, are appropriate in their criticism of the U.S. government of the transaction. And I don't think, though, that there's any surprise that we knew um, that the government felt this way. Um, There'd been extreme pressure, I think, beginning back in 2014, where we saw uptick of these transactions happen. And that's why we saw the notices that Adam mentioned earlier that first came out in in December, or excuse me, I think it was September of 2014, you know, this increasing amount of attention on these transactions, but the, the, the frustration of the current administration to be unable to get any legislation through Congress to definitively shut down these transactions, um, you just have created a situation where there's more uncertainty in the M&A market. Um, but I, I, I think think there's probably, I, I mean, I don't know how Adam feels on this, but I, I was pretty shocked at these rules and how there does not seem to be much precedent, at least as I know, of where the, the 7874, the rules driving the inversion legislation, that, that this was naturally going to fall out of the original legislation that came back in 2004. Adam? Yeah, no, I think that's, that that's right, that these... Uh the rules as written could be argued to fit could be argued to fit within the spirit but it's a hard argument to argue that it fits within the letter of what those uh rules were originally intended to address and the argument would be oh they were written at a time that they couldn't even have contemplated this kind of structure but i think that's the point is that wherever you draw the line it doesn't matter where you draw a line unless you fix the underlying problem companies are going to want to go just past that line and then you can't claim well, we didn't anticipate that to then therefore try to sort of expand that line beyond its original uh, scope. And uh, on that point, so uh, as Jennifer was saying, it's all about size. We've been focusing on how do you get the foreign companies bigger. If they really aggressively shut that down, the other option is for the U.S. companies to try to get smaller. And we're, we're already seeing that more and more now with companies proposing split up, yeah. spin-offs, selling off assets. And, you know, is that a good or bad idea? You know, Typically, I think those should be business decisions, and tax should follow, not tax decisions and business should follow. So, uh, but that that may be where we start heading. But, then. but obviously, it, it it really does become a part of the process because of the fact that the tax rate is at thirty five percent. And until something is done with the tax rate, the the thought process is probably going to continue this way. Correct? Well, I, I I'm not a believer that the tax rate, at least the statutory rate in it, in itself, is driving all okay. of this. What what I really think is what I said before is that it's a rate put on top of these sort of definitions of what is an American income, what is not, what is U.S. income, what is not U.S. income, right. that, uh, that sort of just no longer reflects the real-world economic reality. And so even if we lowered the rate, it's still built on that faulty structure, in my opinion. So, in my, so it, in, from my perspective, solely lowering the rate, all it does is lead to kind of a race to the bottom. Every country has to keep dropping it down. So I would want to 
adjust the rate, but only as part of sort of fixing the system as a whole, or at least as part of a larger, thinking about it as part of that larger project. Unfortunately, that's probably not possible over the next several months because of where we stand politically. But that being said, Jennifer, is an adjustment of the tax rate down to, I don't know what the magic number would be. Do you think that's feasible within the next couple of years? Well, we have a presidential election coming up, right? right? Exactly. So that, yeah. that, it completely depends on ultimately who's yep. in office and, and their view on that area. I mean, I'm with Adam is that, you know, the lowering of the rate in and of itself isn't going to solve the problem. It has to be part of a whole package of how we ultimately should tax multinational companies. And what's the appropriate way? Where do we determine where income is earned and who gets the right to tax it? Um, the U.S. is not operating in a vacuum here. The Europe is well aware of this issue, and there's a whole base erosion profit shifting you know, project involved with the um, OECD trying to sort of figure out who, which jurisdictions get the right to tax the income of these global enterprises. So uh, it's a tough, it's it's a tough thing to grapple with. But I, I hopefully the the current administration recognizes that at least the U.S. should probably consider some sort of over overhauling of its system, such that you know, there isn't such a perverse incentive for U.S. companies to clearly want to simply be acquired by foreign entities. Mm-hmm. That just can't possibly be a good a good answer um, for the U.S. Well, like we say on this show, in a number of situations, uh, thank you, because this is seemingly a topic that is going to be in the news for quite some time, <laughs> and we will no doubt have you both back <laughs> to discuss it as it develops. Jennifer, thank you. Adam, thank you as well. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.